Hello, and welcome to the first of my series where we are going to be studying the book of First Peter. Uh, the series is looking to be about 12 episodes long to start out with, which is how much I've uh, scheduled out for just the first chapter of Peter. And if this is a series that people find valuable, then we will, uh, Lord willing, be able to take it on all the way through the book of First Peter. Uh, now, uh, this episode being the first one, I'm going to take just a little extra time at the beginning in order to just kind of help explain what this series is, why I'm doing it, and kind of what you can expect. And then in future videos, the plan will just be to uh, launch right into it. So the reason I'm doing this series is because... Really, I want to help people read their Bibles better. Uh, that's you know what I talk about a lot on this uh, in this ministry. But how I go about doing that can take a lot of different ways, right? I can um, you know make all kinds of videos and tutorials and things like that. But I thought the other day, you know, it might be valuable when you know people a lot of times will see kind of the end results of my bible study and while i am by no means you know the best teacher in the world the most wise or learned christian in the world i do believe that there is value in helping you kind of see what things look like behind the curtains right behind the scenes to help you understand okay what does it look like when at least one guy who very much values the, the authority and divine inspiration of God's word, what does it look like when at least one of these guys is actually sitting down to study? So instead of just having you kind of hang out with me as I'm reading quietly, what I thought I would do is try as best as I can to kind of give you a visual understanding of the thought process that I go through. And the goal with that ultimately is to not just say, hey, go do what I do necessarily, but to show you here's what can be done. Here's how you go deeper. Here are things to try, things to do with the ultimate goal, of course, being deepening your own study of God's word, helping you find your own methods, your own styles, your own ways of thinking that will help you so that ultimately you and I are moving towards the same goal of understanding what did God mean by this? And then how do we understand that today? But by me showing you my way, hopefully you can then uh, take that, adapt it, carve it up, whatever you got to do to find your own way. Now, if you're listening to this on the podcast, uh, there is a visual component that YouTube viewers will be able to see, but it is by no means necessary. Uh, we're just going to be walking through the text. You're just going to see a lot of uh, script and stuff like that. You know, it's not this big Hollywood media extravaganza that you're missing out on. So I want this to be valuable to the viewers, to the listeners, to really anyone who is just wanting to dig deeper into their study of God's word. Now, having said that for the podcasters, uh, I want to quickly just address those of you who are watching this on YouTube to help you understand what you're seeing right now. So what we're going to be doing is ultimately we're going to look at a the portion of scripture. And for the most part, we're going to be doing this kind of one sentence at a time. And so we're going to read, you know, one to maybe three verses and then I'm going to walk you through the, the mental process that I go through as I am studying, as I'm trying to understand this for myself. So on screen, this might seem a little overwhelming. Uh, it is what it is, but we will uh, break it down into simpler chunks in a way that I trust will help you see that 
uh, how what good Bible study looks like isn't as easy as just having a verse of the day or just, you know, opening up the Bible and seeing what God has for you or even just not reading it at all. But that the effort, that the time is not only worth it, but it's doable by really anyone, right? Any spirit-filled follower of Jesus Christ can do this with some learning, with some training, and ultimately with a lot of patience. So to uh, to explain um, the color system that I kind of use here, so I've got uh, four colors that I am using in this. Now, I don't highlight my Bibles, I want to, it's something I want to really kind of train myself on, but I don't highlight my Bible. So the colors that I use are the kind of guideposts, right? The, the signs that I want you to see here is what I think about when I see these. So anything highlighted in blue are proper nouns that I need to know. So people or places or, or, uh, important named objects, uh, things that are in orange are ideas that I know are important to the text and therefore. I need to make sure that I understand them. I don't want to just constantly be working off assumptions. And I especially don't want to say, I don't know what that is. It's probably not important. Uh, we, we really don't want to do that with God's word. Uh, now, anything in yellow are concepts that when I see them, I know that they're going to be more difficult. Or in hindsight, once I start digging into a word or, or a discussion, realize, wow, that went a lot deeper than I thought it was, but uh, praise God that I was able to grow and learn in my understanding with that one. And then anything that I underline in green are ideas or uh, words that I realize are connected. So as I'm reading and as I'm saying, you know, what does this mean? You know, I might kind of call back to uh, something that was said previously in the text. And so you're going to see all four of those at play uh, in this video, or if you're on the podcast, you're going to um, just kind of hear me work through these different words that kind of stand out to me that I want to dig deeper into. So I think with all that being said, we can get into it. Uh, so the text that we're going to start with is going to be first Peter chapter one verses one to two. I will be using the legacy standard Bible for this. It is an update of the new American standard Bible, but, uh, really any, uh, good quality translation that you're using should be just fine. Our words may be slightly different, but what we're talking about will, uh, will work for me as well as it does for you. So I'm going to read the text and then we will just kind of jump in and you can join me as I uh, take a snapshot of the thinking that I've done through with this. So first Peter chapter one, verses one to two says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as exiles scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the father, by the sanctifying work of the spirit to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So as I read that, uh, there are uh, things that stand out to me immediately. And then as I am uh, reading first Peter several times, because uh, I, so to prepare for this, I read first Peter once a day for maybe 25 days, I think it was. So um, 
you know, takes, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 minutes, uh, plus any time that maybe I want to stop, pause, dig into something. But ultimately, uh, things that you see here are things that either stood out to me initially or as I read it and reread it, I realized, hey, I'm noticing connections. I'm noticing that what he said in chapter one, verses one and two have a kind of, they blossom later on in the text, right? He's kind of laying a foundation here. And so even though a lot of times when we read the first, you know, the introduction to a book of the Bible, we're like, all right, yeah, yeah, greeting stuff, whatever. But we're going to see that uh, even just Peter's basic greeting to these Christians in this area is filled with a lot of truth, right? A lot of good, solid things that maybe even from the start we might need to struggle through. So the first thing that I notice that I think about is I see the name Peter and a lot of people, you know, reading this, if you're familiar with it, you're like, oh yeah, I know Peter, but still it's good to pause and just to think through what do I know about Peter? What do I know about this guy who is introducing himself? And so the first thing that I immediately know is that he was one of the 12 disciples, right? He is one of the guys who followed Jesus around. So that's noteworthy. This is a guy who had uh, a, a personal life spent with the the bodily incarnation of our God. I also know that historically speaking, he was very impulsive and brash, right? Peter will say big things, you know, do big talk. He'll, he'll be, be this really kind of boisterous, you know, almost a loud mouth at times. And that's noteworthy to keep in mind because just as who we were at the moment of our salvation is, you know, by God's grace, much different than who we are a year later, a decade later, as I read this and I read it and reread it, I really noticed the change in Peter's demeanor because Peter, as he's writing this, he's not this, you know, loudmouth guy. He's not making all these bold claims. He's not uh, saying things that are outside of the will of God, but that sound really good. They really tickle the emotions. You know, there are things that we can say impulsively without a lot of thought. As you read the book of First Peter, right, this letter that Peter wrote to these Christians, this is a guy who is measured. He's calm. He's peaceful. He is not constantly fighting against other things, but is working a lot in the in the realm of remember who your authorities are, remember to submit to those that God calls you to submit to, and just live a life of holiness devoted to God. Right. And it's just this amazing thing. You know, you would not expect this guy who's like, oh, Jesus, you know, I can follow you anywhere. And, you know, I would never betray you. I would never deny you. For that guy who made those bold claims, right, who had to really just eat his own hat over and over again. This is the guy who wrote this letter. And then from there, I also remember that, like I said, Peter is a guy who caved under pressure, right? He had this big talk, big ideas. You know, he had a lot of kind of self-confidence and thought that he was just this great, righteous, you know, follower of the Messiah. But when, when faced, right, with opposition, with difficulties, with, you might say, some forms of maybe... Uh, oppression or, you know, social martyrdom, he caved. But then again, as we read this letter and as you read it and reread it, you realize this is a guy who denied Jesus. And now what is he doing? He is saying, don't deny Jesus. Suffer persecution. 
it's going to happen, but stand firm in your faith. You know, that's, that is the Peter that God has, has taken from this, this, you know, uh, impulsive, brash, kind of weak-willed guy into someone who could write this letter and not just write it from, you know, these big boisterous ideas, but someone who believes and lives out the things that he is saying, right? The comfort that he is giving to these people. It's loving and it's gentle and it's filled with wisdom. And you get the feeling that it's feel, filled with experience as well. So just kind of an amazing thing that when we just read the name Peter, we may not think through, but you know, you pause, you meditate and you're like, wow, by the grace of God, here is Peter today. Now, after Peter, I see the word apostle. And apostle is kind of a basic word. It's one that we're familiar with. But again, let's just think through it. You know, what might this have meant, not just to Peter, but to the audience receiving this letter? So we know that apostle means sent one, right? It's someone who had witnessed uh, Jesus, had been in his physical presence, and was sent out with a very specific mission. What was that mission? Well, Ephesians 2, 19 to 20 tells us, so then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Ephesians reminds us that these apostles were foundation layers, right? They were uh, people who had an office for a time, right? Just like you only lay a single foundation before building a house. The apostles and prophets were a thing that had a, a value and a time when, when the church was being established, right? They laid that foundation and then God built the church up on top of them. So Peter is a guy then who was not only just a witness to Jesus Christ, you know, in his earthly ministry, but Peter is also a guy who had been specifically commissioned by Jesus Christ, right? He had a, a great authority because of this role of apostle that he served. And so this church, as we're going to find out, are these, these groups of churches, I should say, they're going through a lot of really intense persecution, you know, and they're going to be feeling lonely, isolated, maybe even forgotten. But there is maybe even a great honor in the fact that it wasn't just some, you know, guy in Jerusalem writing to them, but one of Christ's apostles who, you know, I'm not quite sure what connection Peter had specifically to these churches. You know, if he was the one who had laid the foundation for them, not totally sure. But, you know, someone with great authority in, in, in a very important task from Jesus was writing to them would hopefully make them stand up and pay attention, right? That these aren't just like nice words or platitudes that someone's saying, but, but an apostle to Jesus Christ was telling them this, you know, carrying the authority of Christ as he wrote these things. And as we now know, had divinely inspired words, you know, these weren't just good ideas of Peter's. Peter is the human author, but divinely inspired by God to write them. So, this is what I'm keeping in mind. You know, who is Peter and, and what is his role and office as he's writing this? Now, then, as we are continuing on, I see that he is writing to those who reside as exiles, people who are scattered. And so I want to say, what does that mean? Exiles of what? That could have all kinds of connotations, even just biblically speaking. 
So a Strong's Concise Dictionary. So I, you know, I, I see a word and I want to say, I want to know the definition of that word. You know, some things like apostle or who Peter is, you know, I'm, I'm familiar enough with that stuff that I, you know, I, I'm, I, I can get by with previously acquired knowledge. But sometimes I want to say, okay, what exactly does this mean? Because I don't want to think of what exile means in my 2023 English American vocabulary. I want to understand what did this word mean when it was written? You know, this word that was translated, this word in the Greek, what did this originally mean? And so then I would, I'll consult a dictionary. In this case, I consulted, like I said, Strong's Concise Dictionary. And it says that this word, uh, the exiles and scattered, means that they are an alien alongside or a resident foreigner. Another way would be a pilgrim or a stranger. So <clears throat> this word here, this exile word, doesn't necessarily just mean someone who's been booted out of where they are, but they are people who are, like it says, residing. They are existing. They are strangers in a foreign land. They are aliens living alongside their culture. So they aren't in some kind of, you know, isolated commune or anything like that. They are those who are in their area. They are involved in the culture around them. They they have neighbors who are worshiping not the God of the Bible, right? And so, but they don't belong there. They are exiles. They are aliens. They are there, but that's not who they are. That's not their identity. That's not where they're supposed to be. And that's really noteworthy. So then I want to say, who are these exiles, why are they in a place where they don't belong? What does Peter mean that they are aliens living alongside the local residents? And so there's two places we could go with that. Is Peter writing to dispersed Jews? So centuries prior to Jesus Christ coming, uh, Israel had been conquered and captured and taken out of Israel and kind of planted in different regions. And so this is called the Jewish diaspora. These are the Jews who were scattered all around the region of Palestine. And if you're on uh, the YouTube video watching this right now, I'll have a map uh, that you can see and kind of see where this region of, um, you know, Pontus and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia and Galatia is. But ultimately, it's north of the promised land. So they are not just people who are living outside of Jerusalem, but they are living outside of the land of the Jews, the land that had been promised to them, you know, through Abraham. And so that's what this these dispersed Jews would be, are Jews who literally are aliens. They are people who belong in in Jerusalem and Israel in the promised land, but are instead out of it. Now, it's possible then that Peter is writing to these dispersed Jews. And I say that because it the uh, letter, as you read it, has a lot of Old Testament callbacks that you wouldn't necessarily expect Gentile Christians to understand, right? People who spent 40, 50 years of their life, you know, worshiping at the temple of Athena or something like that. And to be, you know, fresh converts or, you know, saved for, you know, a handful of years at this point, 
and maybe had not had time to familiarize themselves with a lot of the nuances of what we now call the Old Testament, which is the Bible, really, that they had at that time. You know, the New Testament was still essentially being divinely inspired by God. So as Peter then is using a lot of these Old Testament references, you kind of get the feeling that he's talking to people who are in the know, you know, people who are going to catch these references. You know, it'd be like going to a like a big chess convention or, or chess tournament or something like that. And you're talking and saying phrases and dropping names and talking about events with no real context because you just assume that, oh, of course, everyone around me knows Magnus Carlson. I don't need to explain who this guy is, you know. So so that leads me to believe that maybe Peter is talking to actual ethnic Jews, right? People who grew up in uh, a, a, a Jewish lifestyle and would be already familiar with a lot of these things. Reason number two is that in Galatians chapter two, verses seven to eight, Paul talks about how Peter actually had a ministry specifically to the Jews. So Paul was sent out to give the gospel and plant churches with primarily Gentiles, you know, though, you know, Gentile being someone who is not a Jew, essentially. And then Peter was given a commission specifically to go to the Jews, to give the gospel to them, to help them say, hey, this Messiah that you've always read about has been revealed. He has come, he has died, he has risen again, and he has paid the penalty for your sins. So repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. So that is primarily what Peter then was getting up to. So mentally, I'm wondering, you know, he's talking to those who are these dispersed Jews are, are people who are exiles. They are aliens alongside. They are those who aren't where they belong. They he writes to them using a lot of references that might be difficult for people who are not already familiar with them, right? Just kind of dropping names and phrases without context. And then Peter specifically goes to Jews, right? That was his kind of ministry. So it would make sense that that's who he'd be writing to. That's not a Loctite case because, of course, does Peter only talk to Jews? You know, would he see someone who's a Gentile like, oh, no, no, I can't talk to you. Go write a letter to Paul. He'll get back to you in, you know, six to nine months, maybe, depending on all the circumstances God puts him through. No, Peter would go to places that were primarily Jewish, but he's a follower of Jesus Christ. He's going to talk to anyone who God gives him an opportunity to talk to or who God specifically tells him to go and talk to. So I will just reveal myself. I do think that he's talking to the Jews, you know, specifically Jewish Christians. There are, of course, Gentiles here as well, especially because these Jews would have been living in Gentile territory. But I, as I read this, it just makes more sense to me that he is talking to those who are from a, a Jewish bloodline. However, there is evidence and good argument to be made that he is not talking to Jews. And you might say, well, why would that be? He said specifically the, the, the dispersed Jews, people in the diaspora. Doesn't that mean only Jews? Maybe. Or Peter could be getting a little bit cute with his wording. So instead of talking to those who were dispersed, he could be saying, hey, you know, kind of, kind of making a, a reference saying, hey, you are aliens, you are foreigners, you are living somewhere where you don't belong, 
not because you belong in a physical country, but because you belong to the spiritual kingdom of God. And so you are living in this world, but don't belong to this world. You know, you, you, your house number is, you know, 723 Sycamore Lane, but your true residence, your true identity, your true purpose and calling isn't in the, this world, right? You are a visitor, you're a pilgrim, you're an alien just stopping by, just passing on through, but you have a much greater purpose and commission as you're living this life. So that's what Peter could be doing is he could be saying, hey, just as the Jews have been scattered, you also are not where you belong. You also are not part of the people around you. You're there. You're living with them. You know, don't don't isolate yourself. Don't commune up. You know, don't don't build a wall around yourself and be so afraid of sinners touching you. But remember who you belong to and where you belong. Right. Remember what you're looking forward to. And that's going to be a central theme to the letter of first Peter is he is constantly saying, hey, here's where you are. Here's what life is like. Things aren't great, but remember what's coming next. He's going to constantly be saying, hey, think of eternity. Think of where you're going. Think of the salvation that you have in Jesus Christ. So that could be. Um, a good argument for why Peter is doing this is he's being kind of clever. Um, similarly, in 1 Peter 1.18, which we will uh, talk about several episodes from now, there is a implication that Peter is talking um, at one point about uh, how they are not supposed to be like their pagan ancestors, right? Their, their ancestors who uh, were involved in kind of pagan practices and things like that. And Peter says, you know, that's not for you. So is he saying that to them because their parents genuinely were non-Jews? Possibly. We'll get there. Again, that's one where it seems clear cut, but with some history understanding, if we just think logically through it, we might say, uh, is he really talking to pagans though? So, but we'll get there. Teaser for the future. But whoever he's talking to, right, whether they are ethnic Jews, whether they are uh, uh, Gentiles who were part of the pagan culture, but now have been removed from the pagan culture. The the core, right, the important thing that it needs to be understood for them is that uh, Peter is ultimately he's comforting these persecuted Christians. He is saying you are living in the these pagan lands and these pagans aren't terribly friendly to you. They don't really like to hear that, hey, your sins have made you guilty before a holy God. And so he brings them this comfort saying, despite your, your momentary afflictions and the persecution you're going through, he reminds them that they're not accidents. You know, they're, they're not just people who are kind of like saved by the skin of their teeth and God's just kind of forgotten them. Peter is writing to them. He is addressing them. He is bringing them hope in Jesus Christ. So they're not accidents and they aren't lesser Christians. You know, they might be either, you know, Jews who aren't in the land they're supposed to be in, or they might be uh, people who just feel kind of separated and isolated. But Peter reminds them that, you know, you're not lesser Christians. You don't belong there. There's a reason that that things are not 
syncing up properly with how you're living and what how you would like to live necessarily. But they're not lesser Christians just because they're they're you know going through these things. Yes, they are exiles. Yes, there is a negative connotation to that. But as we read the letter, because remember, we don't just read, you know, the, these people wouldn't have read the very first the introduction and been like, oh, Peter said that. OK, we'll pick it up in three days. You know, they would have read this entire thing. And so Peter starts off acknowledging that they are exiles in some capacity, but that's not all they are. That's not where their comfort is. And they're not forgotten or cursed because they're in this pagan territory. So it's not, even if they were uh, people who grew up in paganism, they're not, you know, forgotten. They're not lesser just because they're not, you know, around a whole bunch of, you know, Christian friendly places. They are where God has them and they need to live the life where they are just as they would live it if they were in a place that was really friendly to Christianity, which is ultimately honor God, love God, live for God if necessary, die for God, right? But our whole lives belong to God wherever we are. And then uh, by using that exile language, it's a good reminder that they can and should think and live like people who are set apart. You know, Peter acknowledges you don't belong there. And that's okay. Don't, don't change yourself. Don't compromise because you need to, you think you need to be like those around you. Be weird, but be weird to the glory of God, right? And they should expect to feel different. They should expect that their lives will not be in line with those who are following the God of this age. And then an important note uh, to make when he says to those who reside as exiles in these regions, we, we probably miss that. But remember, the Bible is not written to individuals. The, the, the commands, the calls in the Bible are very rarely just at an individual level. So Peter is writing to, to those who exist in a community. And this letter, the word, when he says the word you, for example, it's always a plural you. He is saying you as a group, you as a local church, you as Christians who are connected to each other. Think about this. Don't do this. Live this way. And so it's really important as we're reading this that, yes, we want to understand the role of persecution in our lives, right? Because the, the things that Peter says to them are just as valuable to us once we read it correctly. But we also really want to remember that we are meant to do these things, to live these things out in community. Not as, as little, you know, isolated camps not as just, you know, people all alone in our room reading our Bibles, but also remember that we live this out together. We are exiles together. We are foreigners in this land together. We are citizens of the kingdom of God together. So do all this stuff together. So important note as we now kind of move into a little bit of a crunchier topic. So as it goes, then he calls them chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the father by the sanctifying work of the spirit to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. Can we be honest and say that that can be a bit 
of a mouthful. I think so. And so what I do then is I'm looking at that and I'm saying, okay, they're chosen. And then there's a whole lot of words after the word chosen. But as I'm reading it, I'm realizing that all of these things that he says about the three persons of the Trinity are connected. They are linked to that word chosen. So what I then honestly had to do as I was reading that is I had to then kind of uh, mentally map it out, if you will. And I had to be a little bit of a grammar nerd. And so I'm sorry, don't pause this. You have to be a grammar nerd with me, but I'll try to make it less painful than your 11th grade English teacher did. So we see the word chosen. Chosen is kind of the core word there. Now, what follows from the word chosen are three phrases that explain what that word means. Now, if you remember from English class, the word prepositions or prepositional phrases, that's what we're dealing with. Now, for the one or two of you out there who maybe forgot what those are, because you don't just use those words in everyday situations. I Crazy, right? I, I, I throw out the word prepositional phrases all the time. But for those of you who maybe have forgotten, the way to think about prepositional phrases is the way that you think about details in a, a character sketch. So if you've ever seen uh, people sketch characters, you will have uh, kind of the start out, you know, you'll have, say you're just, just doing someone's kind of headshot, right? So shoulders and head, you'll have kind of the oval shape. And, you know, maybe some like layout of where the hair goes, where the neck goes, uh, nose, you know, the basic features. That is the word chosen in this case is you, it, it's a word and it's a good word. You know what it is. But these phrases then that Peter uses start adding details, right? They start defining the facial features. They give texture to the hair, right? They, they add, you know, maybe some clothing and stuff on the character to help you better understand it. And that's what prepositional phrases ultimately do is they are things that you can technically remove and still have the, the core structure of your sentence, but by leaving them in, they just really fill out a lot of good quality details, right? So, so just a quick example would be, uh, I ate. All right. So that, that's a sentence, right? You've got a subject, I, and a verb ate. I ate. That's a sentence. It's full. It's complete. It's a true statement. It tells a story, right? Really riveting. But if you say I ate at my mom's house, in the morning that then just adds detail to your basic statement, right? That that's really all the prepositional phrases do. Now, why is that important? Because reading what Peter writes here, we can get really lost in individual words and trying to understand how is all of this connected? So that's what I want us to understand is how is this connected? Because Peter could just say to those who are chosen, grace and peace be to you. But instead he adds all this detail and all this detail, again, understanding the thrust of the letter of hope, of remembering their identity, of who they are, of what their purpose is, of how to live now with an eye towards eternity. How he clarifies 
the term chosen as it applies to his audience and also to us is really critical and really fascinating. So he says that they are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Are we going to get into that topic? Not so much because it doesn't matter. Peter is really clear on what this is talking about. So he says that they are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. That's valuable. They are, they are chosen in the past. You know, they, they didn't just stumble into salvation. They aren't just lucky duckies. They aren't just people who had the inherent righteousness within themselves to realize that they were wicked sinners who couldn't save themselves and called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, turning away from their sin, turning towards righteousness, living in daily repentance. No, they are not accidents. They are saved intentionally by God's foreknowledge in the past. They are also chosen by the sanctifying work of the spirit. Now, this is where I said, Understanding the grammar of this matters because it's not just this long line that's just one package deal, right? They are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. They are also chosen by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And they are chosen to the obedience of Jesus Christ and chosen to the obedience of the sprinkling of his blood. So what does all that then kind of mean? How should we think about it? So how are they saved by the sanctifying work of the Spirit? Well, we need to remember that this is talking about salvation, right? We, we don't want to go beyond the bounds of what Peter is talking about. He is talking about you are chosen for salvation. So everything that this is talking about here is going to be related to salvation, not stuff that comes after. And that's really critical right now because we can understand, okay, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, right? God chose us for salvation. But how are we chosen by the sanctifying work of the Spirit? The simple way to think about it is to realize that no one just trips and stumbles into salvation. Every single testimony of a follower of Jesus Christ has one thing in common, and that is that that their life experience, whether they were saved at five or 65, their life experience contributed to them realizing that they were guilty before God. They had broken his law, could do nothing to save themselves, and that Jesus Christ alone is their only hope for salvation. Now, the details are different, right? You might have a five-year-old who just grew up as a pastor's kid and they just heard this stuff and then were able to understand the stuff enough that they realized they were a sinner and they needed to put their faith in Jesus Christ to save them. As limited of an understanding as they are able to have, it was enough for saving faith. But you might have someone like me who tried to do Christian things thinking that, well, if Christians go to church, if Christians read their Bibles, if Christians teach children's church and on and on, if I'm doing those things, that must mean I'm a Christian. And then finally, God kind of reveals and opens up that all these experiences, all these things that I was putting my trust in and that, that hollow feeling I still had, there's a reason for that. Right, Because I wasn't truly understanding salvation until the moment that the Holy Spirit kind of illumined me to it. And so whatever the story is, 
there's always that process, right? No one just wakes up one day and says, I'm going to be a Christian. They have to live a life, have to be exposed to certain truths or a whole lot of lies and come to a point where they realize I can't do this on my own. I need Jesus. And that's what the sanctifying work of the spirit is in relation to salvation is God doesn't just find you washed up on a shore one day and says, Hey, be revived. The Holy Spirit, whatever age you're saved at, the Holy Spirit is working all throughout the course of your life. You know, if you could just go back and just watch every single moment of your life, you would constantly see that God had been preparing you to come to a point of salvation. And the Holy Spirit is the one doing that work. The Holy Spirit is the one who, when all the pieces are in place, kind of flips the light on and shows you the complete puzzle of your life that has led you to the realization that you cannot save yourself, that you need Jesus. And that's what the Holy Spirit does, right? He sanctifies us after salvation, certainly, right? He is the one who is making us more like Jesus Christ, but he is also the one who prepared us to reach that point where we realize that we need salvation and that, and then, you know, the Holy, the Holy Spirit indwells us and, and grows, you know, the fruit of the spirit in Galatians five and things like that. So again, that's a lot of talk to say simply that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. God chose us for salvation, but then he didn't just wait around for it to happen. He sent the Holy Spirit to guide our lives, to craft our understanding, to prepare us for the point that, of course, we're going to see our need for Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the third part of, of how we are chosen. We are chosen to the obedience of Jesus Christ. And we're chosen to the obedience of the sprinkling of his blood. So what are we talking about here? Are we talking about that we're chosen to just obey Christ after being saved? Yes, but that's not what Peter is talking about. So this statement, right? We are chosen to the obedience of Jesus Christ. We have to remember again that this rests in a discussion about conversion, right? Our salvation moment, if you will. So this isn't talking about his obedience necessarily, but about our obedience to him, right? To repent and believe as we see in Mark uh, chapter one, verses 14 to 15. So we are chosen in the past. We are prepared by the Holy Spirit for the moment when we will obey, when we will place our faith in Jesus Christ, when we will turn away from our sin that only brought us death. And place our faith in one, in the one who only brings us life. So that's what we were chosen to. Now, kind of a weird phrase here is how are we chosen to the obedience of the sprinkling of his blood? Or how are we chosen to the sprinkling of his blood? I'm not going to get into that, but grammatically, it could be either way. So I wrestled with this for a while. And I, I uh, went through several commentaries to try to kind of understand what is being talked about here. And again, understanding that this is all about conversion. This isn't just about uh, what Jesus did in the past randomly, right? We are chosen to something, right? We are somehow invested to obeying the sprinkling of his blood. And so the... Uh, best explanation that I could find that I think makes the most sense 
when, when you fit this one understanding into the whole of what Peter's talking about is in Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 to 8. And I'm realizing I forgot to note where I found this, but I it was either the New American Commentary or the Revised Expositor's Commentary. Because I, I remember spending a lot of time in both of those. I can't remember which one. I think landed me at the place that makes the most sense. But as far as which Old Testament sprinkling, right? Because this is clearly the sprinkling of blood is clearly an Old Testament reference. So which one is it talking about? You know, because the immediate thought that I had that maybe you had is, oh, it's talking about how uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would uh, sacrifice the lamb and they would go into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was on the altar or on the Ark of the Covenant, and they would sprinkle blood, right? That, that was kind of the, the mentally for me, that was my go-to. But again, that wasn't, it wasn't lining up. It wasn't making as much sense in the whole of conversion because Jesus, Jesus, you know, in his obedience was sacrificed on the cross for our sins, but it just wasn't lining up. And so what I was directed to, like I said, is this is likely a reference to Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 to 8. And so I'll just read that to you. It says, Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of Yahweh and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to Yahweh. So this is uh, after Israel had been uh, delivered. They kind of all as one voice said, yes, we're going to we're going to follow God. Now, if you know the rest of the story, you know how that worked out. Eventually, God will bring him back. But uh, Israel's got a rocky road uh, from this moment on. So but then they're making sacrifices and it goes on to say, and Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which Yahweh has cut with you in accordance with all these words. So again, this is noteworthy because we remember in the grander story of Israel, Israel didn't just, you know, uh, uh, good behavior their way into God's graces. God hand selected Israel to be his people at Babel. He abandoned all other nations, but said what would become Israel. This will be my people. This is my group. And so God chose Israel. Think about that language. He rescued them from Egypt, led them, free, led them to freedom, and then called them to obedience. And so Moses then sprinkled them, right? They, they had made a commitment saying that we will obey God. And so Moses in this sprinkling is essentially affirming what they did, right? This blood was a reminder of their commitment to not just be God's people, but to obey their God. Now, again, I say that that's noteworthy and that makes the most sense within the context of all of this. 
because at conversion, what happens? Yes, we place our faith in Jesus Christ, but repentance is also a part of that, right? We are not just saved and then kind of pushed out the door and sent on our merry way. You know, it's not like going and getting, you know, a a flu shot at the pharmacist where you go in, sit down, get your shot and, you know, you're escorted out or whatever. There was a commitment that Israel made and there is a commitment that we make because we don't just get saved, get our get out of hell free card and just continue on with life. We repent. Now, repentance doesn't save us, but we remember that repentance involves understanding what our sin is and, and and confessing it to God and hating it. Now, sadly, we still return to it, but the part of our conversion, part of our being brought into the family of God is that that stuff is no longer for us. You know, read Romans 6. You know, we, we are not supposed to continue in sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. That that way of living, that way of thinking, all that stuff, you know, whether it's our good deeds, whether it's, uh, you know, drug, sex and alcohol, whatever it is, all those things that brought the wrath of God upon us are no longer for us. They're, we are to have no part in that darkness. And so we in our salvation, part of that understanding is that, yes, we obey Christ's call to place our faith in him. And that is all that saves us. But true saving faith is also going to carry with it that same idea that Israel had here in Exodus, that we will obey the words of Jesus Christ. We will live for Jesus Christ. We belong to him. We are chosen and set apart for him. We are exiles in this world, just as Israel was exiles as they left where they belonged. But all of God's people are chosen to obey the call to repent and believe. And we are chosen to then essentially commit to obey. And again, please hear committing to obedience is not what saves you. It's not this weird package deal. But when you recognize the reality of your sin, your guilt before God, what else are you going to do? except hate that which brought you death. Hate the thing that killed your perfect savior. Hate the thing that made God, I don't want to say made God, but hate the very reason that God came in human flesh, lived that perfect life, suffered as a, as though as someone who had done what you did. Every lie you've told, every lustful thought, every angry word, every, every cruel thing you've done or thought. The father punished his son for everything that you did. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ in exchange, you, God gets to look at you as though you had lived that perfectly obedient life that Jesus lived. If you truly understand that, why would you not commit to God in the same way that Israel did understanding that you're going to live a life that looks a lot like Israel. Because Israel committed. They really meant it. They desired it. But they took their eyes off of God and set their eyes on the world. We do that as Christians too.
That does not mean that we were not genuine in our salvation. It absolutely does not mean that we have lost our salvation as though we are capable of sinning more than God is capable of forgiving and being good and merciful to us. But that's what we're talking about here. That is how we are chosen to the sprinkling of Christ's blood. We are chosen to live a life devoted and dedicated to God, where we say, I will follow Jesus Christ. I will follow Yahweh because that is who we are. That is what we are called to do. That is what we are set apart to do, just as Israel was set apart to be the people of God. So one final note on the word chosen. Again, if you're if you're watching the visual of this, uh, it's in yellow for a reason. And uh, for those of you who, um, I, I guess I'll say now, uh, for those of you who want a, a visual of uh, th- what I'm working on for YouTube, I will have a some kind of link down in the description where you can see the full thing with all the text and things like that. Um, you're not going to be able to print it off or anything like that unless you use a magnifying glass. But if you just want to kind of go back through and kind of follow my own thought process, that can help you. So that'll be in the uh, show notes if you're on the podcast or the YouTube description if you're on YouTube. But one final thought about the word chosen, and then we can kind of get into some simpler matters again, is, um, as I said, this word chosen is a callback to God hand-selecting Israel and specific people throughout the Old Testament. You know, you think of people like Rahab, who were not Israel by birth, but became a child of God through that. Um, so the reality, though, of what chosen means, right, and, and why we have to spend so much time on it, is that it's foundational to this letter's comfort and Peter's call to action. So God chose them, right? We need to understand that. God chose them. God chose you if you're a follower of Christ. He did not just accept you. You know, he wasn't just sitting there and you submitted your salvation application and God said, okay, yes, I will allow you. Um It's not that God uh, accepted our good deeds and say, yes, you've done enough. He didn't deem us worthy. You know, God didn't just say, hey, you, you know, I really need you on my team. I need what you've got to offer. That's not how salvation works. That's not how God's choosing worked. God chose nothing that we did to deserve it. Nothing we can do to keep it. God chose them and chose us. And that is a foundational understanding that we must have, that we are not special, and yet we are priceless because we were chosen not just by the foreknowledge of God. We weren't just chosen because the Holy Spirit worked in our lives to bring us to a point where we saw our need for Jesus Christ. But we are chosen and priceless because part of that was because of what Jesus did on the cross that he could call us to place our faith in what he had done. He paid uh, the price only God could pay for you and for me. Now, the idea of the foreknowledge of God is important, right? We don't want to, to, to reframe it or redefine it because it makes us uncomfortable or it goes against our traditions or what we think we know. The true understanding of foreknowledge of God saying in eternity past, I choose them, gives us hope and gives gives them hope. We want to make sure we're talking about the historical audience, gives them hope and then gives us hope 
beyond their current suffering because they can rest in God's sovereignty. Did God choose them for salvation? Yes. The sovereign God of the universe did. And if he chose them for salvation, then that means that he isn't out of control with their current situations, whatever suffering they have, whatever, you know, personal struggles they have, whatever they're suffering as a church, God is still in control. And there is great comfort and hope in knowing that that is the God that we serve. That even when things from a, a, a worldly standard, from a human mindset, when those seem hopeless and out of control and like God has abandoned us, we remember who God is and see that we may not understand it, but we can trust the one who knows more than we do, who has power that we do not have, who is perfect and holy and just in all of his dealings. Now, God choosing them, again, reminds them of where their salvation lies. They're not under God's judgment because they're suffering. God chose them. They are saved. Squared away. Done. Nothing else to be said about it. Nothing else matters but that God chose them for salvation and therefore they are saved because it is God who did it, not them. That also means that they were chosen for something, right? They weren't just like chosen in this nebulous sense and then they were just saved one day and just, you know, left to rot. They were chosen for something, for a life that they are called to live today. And that defines both their purpose, right? What am I, what do I do with my life? and their identity. Who am I? I am God's. Now, how do I live? Because of who I am, because of what my identity is. And then we remember that everything that we're going to read, right? Everything we'll talk about in this series, everything that you are going to read on your own, I hope, everything you read, everything that they are commanded to do is rooted in this one reality. It is based on who they are in Jesus Christ. Now, that was a whole lot of thinking for a single word, right? But imagine if we had just said, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. I don't know what that means. God loves them. And then they keep going. We would miss so much. But by stopping and dwelling and wrestling through, and for my part, spending kind of a lot of time uh, just, just working through it mentally, doing my research and things like that, you know, consulting commentaries and, and reading other parts of scripture that would help me to understand this better. By taking that time, everything that I am now about to read is going to have such a significant impact because I remember that what is said is true about them is also true about me. And so what Peter is calling them to is what God calls me to. What was not right and proper for them is not right and proper for me. What was good for them to do and remember and what they're called to look forward to applies to me as well. And it's all because of who I am in Jesus Christ, who I belong to, where my citizenship lies, and how I understand that based on the world that I live in today. So these things are hard. These things are difficult. They take time. You know, you're, you're getting however long this took, but a, a, a much more condensed version of all the work that went into me making sure I accurately understood this, both for this, this uh, 
topic, right, this video, but also just in general, as I have wrestled with this concept in the past and made sure that I had a biblical understanding of it, not one that I prefer, not one that matches my upbringing and things like that. These things are hard, but they matter because they define who we are and what God has done and therefore how we live this life. Now then, as we are moving on, another thing to note, not just with choosing, but remember that this is all talking about conversion, right? This is that salvation moment, if you will, and everything that God has done to bring us to that point, and then what we do in salvation. But really notice kind of a cool thing is that it's the foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to the obedience of the Son, Jesus Christ. And so we see here the Trinitarian work of salvation in our lives. And it's not just that Jesus died and we just kind of got to hope that we, we stumble into the Bible or someone tells us the truth and that we can get saved, but that all three persons of the Trinity are working in our salvation, that they all have a role, a function that they play in what brought you and what brought me to that point of salvation. And so I just thought that that was a really cool thing that I hadn't honestly noticed until uh, I don't remember how many, but a few readings in, it actually took me to notice, Hey, the Trinity's there doing this one thing, you know, cause you see them there. But again, by rereading things, by getting familiar with it, by thinking through and asking questions, it helps us to notice kind of these cool connections that are clearly there, but that we may not notice on first brush. Now, final thing I also want to notice is as we, we sound off and he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. If you've read the new Testament letters before, this is a familiar phrase and it just seems like a nice pleasantry. You know, it's like the, the, the question that drives me nuts is, Hey, how you doing? And am I expected to respond? I never really know, especially me, because, you know, those of you who know, I, I, I deal with chronic pain. So it's like, how are you doing? Well, I'm saved by the grace of God, but I don't feel great. You know, I, what do you say on a Sunday morning? But, but the reason that, that this stood out to me, though, is in having done all this work and in knowing where the, the letter that Peter's writing is going, when he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This isn't just a pleasantry. You know, we now know how they can have this grace and peace because of what Jesus has done and called them to and why they can experience it because of who Jesus is and the hope that they have that exists far beyond their personal circumstances. So just a, a kind of a cool thing that I noted as I was uh, reading through it there. So you may have noticed that as I'm reading this, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be like Indiana Jones and just, you know, dig in and try to find all these secret codes and things like that. What I'm doing is uh, basically what's called the inductive method of Bible reading, which is basically ask questions, right. And, and figure out the answers. And there's more to it than that. We might have a video on it another time, but that's ultimately what I do is I read it and I say, what did this mean? to them at that time. What does this mean historically? What does this mean geographically? Things like that. I am constantly asking questions. Who is Peter? What is an apostle? What does this word mean? Where are these places at? Uh, you know, 
you know, uh, the, the chosen and then that long string of stuff following the word chosen, I stopped and I asked myself, what is Peter saying here? What is really going on? And, you know, you may have read first Peter before you may have read this alongside me and be like, man, how is he fitting in? I don't know how long the video is now, but you can see the length of the video or the podcast episode and think, how is he fitting all this talking in to just this really basic verse? But here is, here's what I have come to realize about the Bible is the Bible was written in plain Greek language to plain people, right? Jews and, and Greeks alike. It's not this weird, deep mystery. It's not something, you know, as we talk, we can't just like find a series of words in the middle of the letter of Peter and say, oh, here's what I think this means and completely just divorce it from the context. We have to understand what it meant to them at that time. So I, I don't want us to, to lose sight of that with what I'm about to say. Context is king. We have to know why, what this meant to the writer and to his audience at that time. But I think when we understand that, we can get a little bit loosey-goosey with how we read the Bible. You know, if we don't try to hold it up as this, you know, this deeply, uh, uh, you know, mystical, mysterious thing, we can, we can go too far and just kind of like try to read it all through quickly and just and read it like a text message or read it like uh, if you're reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or Harry Potter or, you know, whatever, Gone with the Wind, I don't know, whatever you read out there. It's very easy to just read all the way through and not stop and dwell. I think the way that we need to think about it and the way that I approach it and the way that I think is justified based on what we've just done is that when Peter sat down to write this divinely inspired by God, right? God didn't just say, Peter, take a note, write these exact words. But I think that as Peter or any, any, especially New Testament writer and really Old Testament, but as the Bible writers are writing these things down, I think that they are intentionally crafting things word by word, very thoughtfully and very meticulously. And so as Peter is saying these things, he's taking, you know, what we've done, you know, this really big idea, these really big concepts. And it's like, you know, picture like one of those giant foam fingers at like a football game, you know, the ah, Green Bay Packers are number one. I don't know if they are. I like the Green Bay Packers because their mascot is basically a block of cheese. And that's awesome. But you picture one of those foam fingers, and if you take that foam finger and you squish it down and you compress it and you put a lot of pressure on it, you know, you can have this really minute thing that when you unpack it, when you open it up, it's this much bigger and more detailed thing. And so I think that that's how the Bible writers are. And how I think we need to read them is that they're saying things that aren't mysterious. You know, there's no code. There's no, you know, we count the number of letters and the number of lines and things like that and treat it like the movie National Treasure. But at the same time, we need to understand that they were very intentional with everything they said. And we don't want to find the hidden meaning, but we want to find the full meaning. 
And that's kind of what we did here is we asked questions and said, you know, what did Peter say here? What is the implication? How would Peter have understood this word or these phrases? How would his audience have received it as they sat down and they discussed it with one another? Because remember, the Bible is not written to you. It was not written to individuals. It was written to whatever group of people it was written to at the time. Except for Philemon. But I digress. So, but, but these are written to people in a certain context or a person in a certain context. And so we want to understand not just what the author meant, but, or how do we check that against how these people would have then discussed it? How would they have read this and heard this? And then after reading the letter, maybe several times discussed how they were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. How would they have discussed that Peter used the word exiles? What would that have meant to them? How would they have encouraged each other with the things that Peter was saying? So again, not secret code, but not just something that we can just kind of casually breeze past. Even an introduction, as I think you've seen, is not just this, you know, blase kind of whatever thing where we just kind of move past it and find the really cool stuff that stands out to us that we can slap on a coffee mug or post on social media and say, hashtag blessed. We want to pause. We want to honor God's inspired word through Peter and understand all these things that have context. They have deeper meaning that are ultimately lost on us being almost 2000 years removed from the culture and context that they were written into. So that is kind of um, what I took from from my reading of this, right? That, that is, those are the, the strings that I pulled on to try to understand better, right? Those are the paths that I chased. That's not all I could have done. That's not all that you can do, but that is honestly a snapshot is as I was reading Peter the first time, as I was reading it the 25th time, these are questions that I had. And then the answers that I wanted to track down. Now, some things were very clear. Some things were harder. Some things like, especially what that sprinkling meant, I had to struggle through. And I'm pretty confident just again, based on the, the context of conversion, that that is what Peter is referencing, but he's not clear, right? He took that foam finger and just packed it down so tight. And I don't know if I fully opened it up now. I don't know if I, if I see what team is written on that foam finger, but I understand it better. I've had to stop. I've had to pause and dwell and really think through it more than I would have if I just read it on my phone because it got emailed to me from, you know, the verse of the day website or something like that. So I hope that this was valuable to you. I hope that you kind of got a good look into just how I think. Um, like I said, this is a lot longer in a way than what it took me because, uh, the stop and explaining how I came to the conclusions took a bit longer, but this is what I do though. These are the words that I noticed, the phrases I noticed, the connections that I made. And so you kind of just in a way got to hang out with me and see like, this is what my Bible reading and study time looks like. You know, I, I want to study to show myself approved. I want to rightly handle the word of truth. I want you to rightly handle the word of truth. Because God's word is our highest authority. It is everything that we need to understand life and faith. And so let's treat it like it is, right? Let's, let's think correctly about God's word. Let's 
honor it and respect it and hold it up to the the level that it deserves to be at, which is the highest level, and then read it and study it as though we believe that that's true. So some uh, closing thoughts on the text itself, and then I'm going to have just some closing thoughts on the whole video as we uh, uh, propel ourselves into the rest of the series. So when I'm reading, one thing in a broad sense that I like to always pay attention to is what is it saying about God? What have I learned about God? How do I better understand him as he's revealed himself through this passage? So I see that God is the one who chose us. God is the one who prepared us for salvation. And he is the one who called us to obedience in turning from our sins and placing our faith in Christ. And he is the one who calls us to holiness, to devoting ourselves and saying, like Israel, yes, I belong to Jesus Christ. I will follow Jesus Christ. That's who our God is. And so that is what I see about God. And if, you know, maybe uh, if you're on YouTube, maybe you write and you tell me what you see about God in this passage. And uh, I'm terrible at responding to things. I fully admit that. But I do read everything that I get, you know, all the encouragements, all the criticisms and things like that. Um, I do read those. So, if, you know, if you want to share something that maybe you've seen about God in this passage, um, I'd love to hear it in the comments. Uh, you can email me. Uh, the contact info is on my website, onwardinthefaith.com. But uh, that is kind of simply put, big sense. That is what I see about God as I read First Peter. Now, another question I like to ask is, what does it say about Christians? And I might phrase that differently. You know, what does it say about uh, sinners? What does it say about humanity in general? Uh, but in this particular case, being primarily aimed at Christians in a broad sense in the letter and addressing Christians only in what we've read, what does it say about us? What do I understand? What has been reinforced in my mind? Well, I remember that we are vile criminals undeserving of God's goodness, right? Nothing that we did affected God's choosing of us. He chose because he is good and chose us who, like Romans 3 says, we didn't seek him. We don't seek after good. We didn't desire righteousness on our own, but God desired it for us. And so he, you know, with us undeserving, just poured out his goodness on us in saving us. Uh, we, as Christians, are redeemed, righteous, and justified because of God's goodness. And in the future, right, we will be saved from God's wrath, as you see in the book of Revelation. And we are chosen citizens of heaven and pilgrims on the earth. Again, Peter called them exiles, pilgrims, foreigners, which I think is just talking because ethnically, you know, Physically, they were separated, but we also can't ignore the reality that we are just like that, right? We don't belong here. We are citizens of heaven. We aren't finding our identity and our purpose in the earth. It holds no hope for us. It holds no good for us apart from the good that God allows us to experience, again, in a human sense, right? Everything is good because God deems it so. We just don't always feel that way sometimes. But that is what... I am taking away with, with myself, who is my God? And because of who he is, how do I better understand myself? I am chosen. I am God's. I am called to live a life for him. And it's a joyful thing. It's a good and a beautiful thing. And as I'm living that life, I am constantly thinking, I don't belong here. 
but boy, I can't wait till I get where I'm supposed to be, which is at the side of my Savior. So kind of a closing devotional thought, if you will. Um, I'm not really good at writing devotional type things that you're used to, but in terms of encouragement, the takeaway, the things to think about, here is what I am left with that I'd like to leave you with. But again, share maybe what what God has uh, revealed to you has kind of pricked in your heart. You know, what are you understanding better about God and yourself in all of this? But as a closing challenge, the opening of 1 Peter isn't something that we can brush past to get to the meat of the letter. This introduction sets the tone and direction for the entire letter. We, like Peter's audience, have a foot in two worlds. We live in a world that hates our Savior and us by extension. Yet, we also know where we truly belong, at our Savior's side. The only way we can glorify Jesus Christ in this life is to remember who we belong to so that we will never forget where our hope truly lies. You're in this world, but remember that it offers you nothing greater than what awaits you in eternity. Our greatest comfort isn't in our circumstances, but in the reality that we are gods forever. That is the hope that Peter's audience needed, and that is the hope that we need today. So that is the talk of First Peter. So as we wrap up here, um, again, reminder, this just shows you how I do it, right? This is kind of the thought process I go through, how I trace things down. It's hard. It's a lot harder than five seconds in the morning or only being exposed to the Bible at church. But anyone can do this. And I hope that I've shown you that. I didn't take you through the whole process of when I was reading commentaries and things like that. But I hope you've seen that these things can be hard to arrive at in a moment. But if we are studying God's word, not just reading it, not just exposing ourselves to the English language with words written in a certain series with some punctuation marks dabbled in there. But if we are studying it to understand it, then what I've done is doable. It's probably not going to be doable right from the jump, right? This is, this is not what I could do 10 years ago when I kind of first started really surrendering to Christ and, and devoting myself to him and wanting to truly study and understand his word. This is not an easy process, but it's something that anyone can do with the right tools, with the right people around, with the right motivation and desire and wrapping all of that up in prayer, right? God's not going to just grant us understanding just because we work really hard. If we aren't going to him in prayer and surrendering to him first and surrendering our will, our desire, our time to him, very unlikely, I would not expect to grow in the knowledge of God if you are not already submitting yourself and surrendering and trusting God in that growth and understanding of him. But above all, not only can everyone do this, not only is this hard work that's possible, but it is so worth it. And I hope that you see that just from you know this initial brush with it. But I hope as the series continues, I hope that by God's grace, as I am able to go through the entire uh, book of First Peter, that you will see that this stuff is hard. It takes time. You know, I I primarily only read Peter all through the month of November. That's that's all I exposed myself to. There was other stuff, of course, but as, as far as my actual Bible reading went, like 
day 17, I am, I am done with Peter. You know what I mean? I was, I was over it. I was so sick of reading the same words over and over again and predicting what was coming next, but it was worth it because I have a much deeper understanding of this book than I have had for years, for a decade, right? In one month in exposing myself to it and constantly asking questions and talking to uh, some guys that I trust who I really value their input. I have walked away, not just with really good head knowledge, but so much more hope in, in my future and eternity with Jesus Christ. I better understand what it means to live in this world, to deal with its sufferings, to deal with its persecutions, but to rejoice, to still live as God wants me to live because of what I can look forward to in the future. And knowing that this little blip on the timeline is going to be nothing 10 billion years from now as I live eternity with my savior. So it's worth it. It's hard, but it's so worth it. Now, also remember, this isn't meant to be entertaining. I know that uh, there's so many Christian podcasts out there and so much stuff that you can listen to. And I am very thankful and humbled that I am part of your your diet, if you will, of, of biblical content that you consume. But please just don't let this be an entertaining thing where you just kind of hear it and be like, hmm, yeah, cool, and then go on about your business. I want you to go do this stuff for yourself. I want you to take what I've done and kind of follow the same kind of pattern or take some good things that you find valuable and apply it to what you're already doing. I want you though, I want you to read God's word better tomorrow than you did this morning. So go do it yourself. Enjoy this. You know, I hope that it's valuable, but please go and do this stuff yourself in first Peter or wherever you're reading. So to do that though, remember, just ask questions. You know, that, that is ultimately everything on there is me just saying, do I understand that? Or me saying, what does that mean? Or what is going on here? Right. Every answer that I had started with a question. So ask questions. And even, you know, if you, if you want to go through first Peter with me, pull on strings that I don't, I don't dig into every single word and every single concept and every single potential meaning and understanding that I could have. But, but go do it. If there's something that, that I'm talking about that you want to understand better, or you're like, oh, I wish he had addressed that. Then go, go take what I do, take the good, any, any good that I'm offering you and just use that to pull on the strings that I'm not. So to do that though, use God's word and other resources to help you answer those questions. Right. I talked about, you know, I used a dictionary. I've used uh, some some uh, commentaries and things like that. Uh, I pulled in other scripture that I understood or that I was directed to to help understand all these things. You know, God's word answers itself, but we don't want to be so arrogant to say, oh, all I need is the Bible. As though those who write these books and commentaries and things like that, as though they don't have the exact same Holy Spirit that we have teaching them the same things or teaching them things that he's not teaching us because God wants to use those normal means of growing us. Sometimes, you know, sometimes he will give us this incredible, you know, divine understanding of things where we could not, we know that we could not have understood it by ourselves, but don't be so arrogant and so isolated from other Christians that you say, you don't have anything I need. I've got this myself. So Use God's word. Absolutely. Primary authority is God's word. God's word explains itself. It will not contradict itself, even if we as Christians often contradict it. 
but find value in other resources. And if you have just stumbled upon my channel or you haven't watched everything that I've released in the last few weeks, then I would encourage you to go watch my recent episode on how to study theology for yourself. And I will uh, link it down below. But in that, uh, that is part one of a two-part series where I just teach you how to, how, you know, good Bibles to use, good resources to use to help you do this stuff. But a uh, video that I released as I'm recording this today um, is how to study theology in community. And I would encourage you to watch that as well, because again, we don't want to do this on our own. Now, as I said, um, during our talk, a lot of these questions came up on my first read. Some of them came up after multiple reads and I started noticing things. So again, what you read the first time, don't just like, you know, wrap it and call it a day and say, oh, I'm done. I got everything I need out of this. You know, there's, there's Peter is talking about so much, you know, all throughout God's word, the writers are talking about so much. And, and especially in our modern context, we lose a lot of things that would probably have been very apparent and obvious to the people reading it at the time, because it was addressing them and things that they understood. So, uh, again, multiple readings is something I would really, really encourage you to do. And then, uh, you know, the end of any online digital content, um, you know, if you have enjoyed this, you know, like the video, uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel, subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss things. I am terrible at promoting. I am, you know, fairly small, so you're not going to probably stumble upon this again for another few years. Um, so subscribe if you want to keep following and, and seeing more of this. Make sure that you share it with others. Uh, you know, be that normal means if you find this valuable in helping someone else find, you know, how to study the Bible, how to read First Peter, and just uh, even talk to them about it. You know, read First Peter together, talk about some of the things, and encourage one another. But uh, just again, share this with others if you find it valuable, and you know that others would as well. And then finally, uh, if you like what I'm doing here, if you appreciate what the ministry of Onward in the Faith is, you can support the ministry every month or uh, one time, uh, and links will be down in the show notes to uh, pledge your monthly support or just give a, a one-time uh, thank you to help me kind of cover the costs associated with this ministry and just kind of staying alive in this world until our Savior comes. So uh, thank you for joining me for this. I hope you are excited. I am so excited. Uh, I was, as I was preparing for this, I got hit with bronchitis and pneumonia and it's like, I can't talk with this. So I am glad to be recording this. I am so excited to keep digging into helping you understand and love and value God's word more, not just so that you've got good head knowledge, but so that you can have it change your life and so that you can better learn how to handle God's word well in your own life and as you're dealing with others. So Go read First Peter, and I will see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com, where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ. 